Okay. So I do have, um, as you guys see up on the screen, the most important question for you guys this morning. You see, throughout all of our lives, we're always asking questions. Um, Infants are usually asking the question of where's mom or really where's food. Um, As kids start to get older, though, they ask a very specific question, why, why, why? But then when they become teenagers, they start asking, why not? We have these questions in our lives, and throughout all, all different parts of our lives, we have these different questions, and I'm going to tell you this morning that there's one question that is more important than every other question in your lives right now. In fact, I'm going to tell you that it is the most important question in the history of the world and in the future of the world to come. This is the most important question for all of eternity, and it will remain the most important question for all of eternity. And that question is, who is God? You see, everything comes out of that question. Even people who don't believe in God have to answer that question. Even if they just do it subconsciously, they, they, they have to say, okay, I, who is God? I believe God doesn't exist, and so I'm going to live my life this way. But if God does exist, then we live out of that, and we do the things that we do based on who God is. The most important thing about you, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God. Because that will determine everything you do in your life. Who God is, is the most important question. And so we must think rightly about God. We must know who he really is. We we have to think rightly about him, because if we don't, we're going to end up wasting our life. We're going to end up doing things that, that are worthless. Think about the person who... And I'm sure that a lot of us at different times in our lives have thought of God as this, but God as the magic genie that gives us our wishes, right? So often we think, okay, if I'm following God, if, or really, if I just believe in him, then he should give me the things that I want. And well, what happens when he doesn't? Well, then either he's not all powerful because he couldn't do that for me, or he doesn't love me because he didn't do it for me. And that's a wrong view of God. Some people even think of God as this, this all-powerful watchmaker that created the world and, and wound it up and, and set it into motion and then kind of just forgot about us, just kind of, okay, we'll let things happen. But if that's true about God, then that means that, well, we don't really have a whole lot of hope right now, do we? Is there salvation? Does God even care about us? We must think rightly about God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And, and really, for me, this is a really personal journey. This is a really personal message to me because these last few months have, have been all about this for me. And so a lot of this is just coming from, from my experience. Um, and so for me, this starts with God's greatness. Our instincts of worship and trust are stimulated greatly by knowledge of the greatness of God. G.I. Packer said that in his book, Knowing God. What that means is that how much, we want, how much we have the desire to worship God and how much we trust God really depends on how great we think God is. And I can tell you something right now that's true. If you do not have the desire to worship God, then you don't think very highly of him. You don't think he's all that great if you don't want to worship him. And something else, if you don't trust God, if you have trust issues with God, then you don't think he's very great either, Right? you don't think he can take care of you. 
And yet God is great. We, we sing about it all the time. But the problem is, is we say a lot of things are great. Pizza's great, right? And so when we say pizza's great and God's great, we kind of get this mixed up. And yet God really is great. For me, this, this one of the most one of the best descriptions of God, um, and, and this comes from Genesis 1.1. I don't need to turn there. You guys know it. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And those first four words are so important. They tell us so much more than we realize. In the beginning, God. You see, if I was going to tell you about my day, and I said, in the beginning of today, I uh, woke up. Well, with that assumption... As I say that, that means that I was there before the beginning of today, right? Because I didn't say, now if I was to tell you about the beginning of June 26, 1990, I can say my mom went into labor and had me, but I wasn't there before that. And yet when we say, in the beginning, God, that says so much about God, because God was there before the beginning. In John 1, it talks about all things were created through him, and without him, not a thing was created that was created. God is uncreated. We don't use that word very often to describe God, and yet it has such power in my life because God is uncreated. There's two categories, uncreated and created. In the uncreated category is God, and in the created category is absolutely everything else in the universe. Right there, that alone shows us that God is great, and we are not. There's that separation. Even though we're made in the image of God, we are still created. God is the uncreated God, and he is great. And we see more about his greatness throughout the Bible. And as we talk about God, as, as we, we need to know about him, to think rightly of him, we have to talk about his attributes. But first, we have to understand a little more about God's attributes and how they're different from our attributes. Because my attributes don't show you what God's attributes are. And so as we talk about the attributes of God, we must understand who God is more. The best description of God in the Bible comes from Exodus 3.14. In Exodus 3.14, Moses, God is talking to Moses through the burning bush. And Moses says, well, when I go down to Egypt, who should I tell them sent me? Who should I say that you are? And God says, I am who I am. God says, I am myself. And right there is the best description of God because nothing can describe him, nothing can define him but himself. And so when he says that, he, he's saying so much about himself and yet we don't really understand any of it. As, as we read that verse, it's, it, it says so much about God and yet we, we still don't understand that and yet that is the best description of God. And when we look at God's attributes, we can't look at them is our attributes, because God is always himself. In every situation, God is all of his attributes. God is all loving. God is all merciful. God is all just. God is all knowing. Even in the Old Testament, he is all loving in every situation. We see different, we're able to see different attributes more, but they're all always there. But this doesn't come from a perfect balance of parts. It's not as though God is well-balanced. 
Rather, it comes from an absence of parts. God has no parts. He is himself, and he is always himself. In some situations, I can be kind. In another situation, I can be angry or mean. God is not that way. He is always himself. When we talk about his attributes, we have to understand them from that point of view. And as we talk about his attributes this morning, some, some people say that there are seven attributes of God. Faber says there's a thousand. And Charles Wesley says, glory thine attributes confess, glorious all and numberless. And so I could continue to talk about God's attributes for the rest of eternity, and I would not run out of them. But I won't do that this morning. <laughs> and that leads to, my, to the first attribute of God. And, and I just picked three that really spoke into my life. And this first one is limitless. And that speaks to his attributes. God's attributes are limitless because God himself is limitless. One of my favorite verses about the limitlessness of God is in John chapter 21. You guys are familiar with the gospel of John. Um, this is after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And, and John kind of almost writes this short little epilogue. And it's very poetic, and yet it's, it's true. So in John 21, 25, he says, Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The world itself could not contain the books that could be written about Jesus. That was true back then. But you know what? It's also true today. And we have e-books, okay? You can fit like 10,000 books on one of those little Kindles. And I can tell you today that the world itself could not contain the e-books that could be written about Jesus, about God, because he is limitless. But it also tells us something else. God's gifts are limitless. His grace is limitless. It is the shoreless ocean. God's grace is limitless. In Romans 5, Paul talks about this. He says, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. And you know, he gets to chapter 6, and, and he says, now, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, and I'll tell you today, no. Should we? No, by no means. And yet, can I tell you something else? Grace will abound. I've heard people tell me, talk about, hey, I really tested the limits of God's grace when I did that. And, and they're, you know, they've even kind of come back and said, well, I mean, okay, not really, you know, but I was close to testing the limit. No, no, you weren't. There is no limit to God's grace. There's nothing you can do that he cannot, that he does not have enough grace for. God is limitless. The second one this morning is God is unchanging. God does not change. It says this in Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. In Hebrews 13, 8, it says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. And this really speaks to us because that means God, does not, God will not change his mind about you. It means that God will not change the way he feels about you. Every time I talk about God's unchangingness, his um, immutability, um, people always ask me questions afterwards about it. I've had it happen a few times recently where they say, well, Ryan, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you're wrong, but what do you do when it says that 
you know, in Genesis, when, when it says that God regretted making people, when he's, when he's talking to Noah, it says he regretted making people. What do you do when it says that God regretted making Saul king? What do you do in Jonah when it seems like God changes his mind? Or on Mount Sinai, what do you do with those things? Um, and those questions might be in your head. The first thing, and I can't, I, I don't say that I have the perfect answer. I don't say that I, I know all of this. But the first thing we have to understand is that any time we use human language to describe God, we are limiting him. God is above human language. And yet, God still uses it so that we may know a little bit about him. Really, God's attributes are, are, are things that God has revealed to be true about himself. It's not all of God. And so when he says these things, when it says he repented or he regretted, it's a way to help us to understand the situation, to understand what God did in that situation. God's character does not change, even though he does have different actions at different times. God's character does not change. And really, that unchangingness leads us to his faithfulness. Because God is unchanging, he is perfectly faithful. He is faithful to us because he will never change his mind about us. He will never change the way he feels about us. He will never change his promises. He will never back out on them. We are unfaithful because we change. Our feelings change. We are in a constant state of change in this world, and yet we have the Lord, our rock, our refuge that does not change. And he's never changed his plan either. And that leads us to God's love. God is loving. And if we understand those first attributes, then we understand that God's love is limitless and God's love is unchanging. And like I said before, God is all loving in every situation throughout the Bible, and yet we see it best through that, that story, through, through the gospel, the good news that we have. That really isn't just Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, but it's the whole Bible. We see in the beginning, God created us and God created us to have a relationship with him. God created us to be dependent on him. And if we understand that God is the uncreated God and we are the created universe, that only makes sense that we would be dependent on him. And yet, when we sinned, really what we did was we said, God, I don't trust you to know good and evil best. I want to make that choice for myself. And in doing that, we put ourselves on the throne as the illegitimate king of our lives, and we said, I know best. And we've been putting ourselves on that throne ever since, being independent from God. But because God loved us, he knew when the uncreated God makes the world to work a certain way, it's going to work that way. And it doesn't work with man as king. It doesn't work with us independent in charge of our lives. And because he loved us, he made a way that we could be dependent on him once again. God, and, and throughout all history, he was working towards this goal. God came down from heaven, the almighty, uncreated, all-knowing, limitless, unchanging God came down from heaven as a baby. He humbled himself. He came down from heaven and he lived a life and then he died for us. God died. That 
that phrase itself is an oxymoron. That doesn't make any sense. God died. But he did it because he loved us. And because Jesus paid that price, because he is our salvation, once again, he made it possible for us to be dependent on him completely for everything in life, for our salvation. And that is God's love toward us. And that brought me to a point one night a few months ago, a night filled with tears. And I can tell you, I used to be the kind of guy that was too tough to cry. And then I began to know God and his greatness and yet how much he loves us. If you're too tough to cry, seek to know God. And on that night, I realized how great God was, how the, the, the almighty, the uncreated God, I began to realize, I, I, I will never realize it fully, but I, but I began to realize how great God was, this uncreated, almighty, everlasting God, how great he is. And yet, he came and he died for me. And he gave his life for me so that he could spend eternity with me. And I realized, in that moment, I realized that I would be content. No, it would be my greatest joy to be a servant in the household of the Lord. That there would be nothing better in life than to be a servant, just a servant in the household of the Lord. And yet, he's made me his son. God has called me his son. And that changes my life forever. Because this adoption as sons means something different. Because I can tell you all there is, well, all that I know, all that we can know from the Bible about God, and yet it means nothing if you don't actually know him for yourself, if you don't actually know him, not just about him, but know him. You must experience him. You must have an encounter with him. We all have this hunger inside of our souls. And this isn't something I have to convince you of. Everybody knows it. Even people who don't believe knows that this is there because we try to fill it with everything else in our life. We try to fill it with drugs and alcohol and food and sex and all these things that we we try to fill it with, but nothing satisfies us. And yet he is the one that satisfies. Think about if you're hungry. If you were hungry and you went and you read a cookbook, would you be full afterwards? What if you watched the Food Network? What if you went to Winco and looked at all the wonderful groceries? Would you be full afterwards? No, you have to have a personal encounter with the food. And I know that sounds silly, (laughs) but is there any other way to put it? You have to have this personal, intimate encounter with the food. We can know all this stuff about God, and yet it will not change your life unless you have a personal encounter with him. It will not do anything in your life unless you know him. John 17, 3. Oh, went too far.
John 17, 3, this is the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer. So as he's praying to this, this to God, he says in verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that you know God. I've spent the last two and a half years um, really spent quite a bit of time um, trying to learn more about heaven. And I, you know, I read a couple books about heaven, was reading the scriptures about heaven. I wanted to know what is heaven going to be like? What do I have to look forward to? And then I read a quote by Charles Spurgeon a couple months ago that just kind of made me go, man, I missed the point. He said, we don't know much about heaven, but we know Christ will be there. And that's enough. Guys, eternal life is knowing God. And our salvation is for that eternal life, right? Jesus came and he died so that we could step into that eternal life. We read at the beginning of Ephesians. I know I'm kind of all over the map today. But at the beginning of Ephesians, in chapter 1, we see... uh, in, in, verse, in verse 13, 1 verse 13 we start, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Talk about that inheritance. Can I tell you the reason why Jesus died for you because so often we think of salvation as life insurance. We think of salvation as this future promise of thanks Jesus for dying for me so I don't have to go to hell. How often do we think of salvation as just escaping from hell? How often do we tell people, do you know where you're going when you're going to die? Salvation is so much more than that. When Jesus died on the cross, he tore the veil, and now man and God could have relationship again, and we were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That is our inheritance. And as it says here, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, but a different word, another way of translating that is the down payment. We have this inheritance, and we know from John 17, 3, our inheritance is really, is God, is knowing God. That's eternal life. And yet we have a down payment for that inheritance now, and that is the Holy Spirit. Do you guys understand that we have the Spirit of the living God inside of us? There is no greater honor than that. I can tell you, if the world came together, and all the, all the countries came together, and they formed one government, and they made you king, that would be less of an honor than having the Spirit of the living God living inside of you. And first and foremost... The Spirit is there so that we may know God. The Spirit brings us power. Yes, the Spirit, the Spirit does great things for us, but first and foremost, the Holy Spirit is there that we may know the one true God, and that is eternal life. I'm going to tell you right now, eternity starts today. Yes, in the future there will be glory, and we have that to look forward to, and yet right now you have the Spirit of the living God inside of you that you can know you can have that personal relationship with. And that is the beginning of eternal life. That is our inheritance, is knowing God. And there is nothing better than that. There is nothing better than knowing 
the Almighty God on a personal level. Sometimes it's difficult, though, to know kind of what we do with that. And this, this illustration came to me while I was, we were at camp a couple weeks ago. And really, a lot of the time that we seek the Spirit, really what we're doing is we're saying, God, what do you want me to do with my life? We're, we're looking for God's will, right? And so, um, you know, and as we're getting ready for college, we're like, okay, God, where do you want me to go to college? Or where do you want me to get a job? Where do you want me to move? What do you want me to do with my life? And so that's kind of what we're looking for when we seek God. And so we, we grab our keys and we walk out the door to the driveway and we get in the car and we start the car and then we roll down the passenger side window and Jesus is standing there. We say, hey Jesus, uh, where, where do you want me to go? And he says softly, just open the door. He said, no, no, don't worry about it, Jesus, just give me directions, I'll meet you there. And he says, Ryan, just unlock the door. I say, actually, you know what? Uh, no, just give me the address. I've got Google Maps. Um, actually, it'll get me there faster, um, so don't worry about it. He says, Ryan, unlock the door. And when you let him in the passenger seat, he doesn't just sit there and give you directions. No, what, God, what Jesus does when he gets in that car with you is he says, how's it going? What's going on in your life? He says, let me tell you about this time that, that I saved the, the Israelites out of Egypt. Let me, let me tell you more about that, what I was really doing. You know what? Let me tell you something more about myself. And along the way, he'll say, turn left here or turn right. But that's not the point, right? He's in our life so that we may know him. He already knows you completely down to your core. He knows everything about you. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets. And yet he has said, I love you. And that will never change. And first and foremost, what he wants is for us to know him back. And that is eternal life. And that is this life. And that is the only thing that matters is knowing God. Having that relationship with him is everything. That's what this life is about. But we come to a tough point right now because I'm at a loss for words of what to say of how to do it. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've stopped talking about the Holy Spirit as much is because that relationship with the Holy Spirit is too deep for words. It's groanings which cannot be uttered. And so when I come before you today, I, I can't really tell you exactly how to have that relationship with God. God tells you nobody's story but your own. So what I can tell you today is what God's done in my life and how I've seen him work, how I've sought to know God more. And I can tell you right now that that starts with prayer. In the past, my prayer was feeble and weak and fake, and it's just pathetic. Those quick prayers that we do before dinner, it's almost like we're just saying, okay, um, yeah, hope this food isn't poisonous. <laughs> like, are we really seeking to know God in that? Prayer changes everything. 
But it's got to be that prayer that is intimate between you and God. It's got to be that prayer that is personal, where you're not just, sometimes I find myself, especially I think as a pastor, um, talking about God when I'm really, when I'm praying, when I really should be praying to him. Have that, that intimate prayer time with him. And what I'm going to tell you right now is I cannot give you a time limit. I cannot give you amount of time to do that. Often people will try to do that. Oh, you know, if you just do a minute a day, that's good. Or if you do, you know, half an hour a day, that kind of thing. Because I will tell you that right now, 24 hours a day is not enough time in the day to know God. But we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. We have eternity to know him, and yet we don't have enough time today to know him. And so I cannot give you a time limit, but what I will say is that's between you and God. And as you do this, as you really seek and desire to know him, there will never be enough time in the day to know God. That's what he's done in my life. And, and yeah, there's times where I fail, and there's times where I back out. There's times where I think, oh, that really, I'd rather do something else today, and I'm always wrong. I'm always wrong. There's nothing better than knowing him. We must seek God in prayer, and we must seek God in the scriptures. Because that's where we often get those funky ideas about God is when we're not reading our Bible. We're not taking what we hear from the Holy Spirit and comparing it to the Bible to know that it is the spirit of truth in our lives that is speaking. And they go hand in hand. Without the spirit, the Bible is dead I used to think, you know, I used to try to get atheists, just, just read the whole Bible and then come back and, you know, and then talk to me. An atheist could read the whole Bible and it'd be nothing, it'd be dead words, because without the Spirit in your life, this is dead. But with the Spirit, it is the power of God. Prayer and reading your Bible have to go hand in hand. If you want to know God, you must do this. And there is nothing better than knowing God. And lastly, our experience in life. We know God through the things that happen in life. And if you begin to know God, you will see God everywhere in your life. You'll be one of those people that when somebody says, oh man, this pizza's really great, you think in your mind, well, God's great. And it may seem annoying a little bit at times, but that's what eternal life is. That's what true life is, is in everything in your life you put it through, you put it up against that, and you say, what does this say about God? Is this true about God? Who is God? Where is God in this situation? We can see God in those experiences of life. And I want to finish up by telling you guys that I'm, I'm not up here because I'm getting paid to do it. I'm not up here just to try to promote summer camp for next year or something. I'm not up here to make myself look good. I'm not up here to get a promotion. I'm up here because the Almighty God has done a work in my life, and I want to share that with you. The way that God has worked in my life, I want him to work in every single one of your lives. And he is already working in many of your lives. And, and for a lot of you, this, this may be something that, that you have known for years, for some of you, like me, just a few months ago, this may have been this may be something newer. 
the light bulb clicks on. I don't know what God will do through this message today, but I can tell you he's already impacted my life with it. And as I'm up here preaching today, really what I want to do today is to know God more. And first and foremost, that's what I'm going to do, is I'm going to seek to know him with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind, because there is nothing better than that. And there is nothing else than that. That is eternal life. And that eternity starts today. Know your God. Almighty God, we thank you and we praise you, God, for the work that you've done in our lives. God, we thank you for what you've done in the universe. God, you are who you are. God, no matter, no matter what I think, God, you are yourself. God, and you have sent your son to die for me. And because of that, I can have a relationship with you, God. And I pray for myself and I pray for these people here that we would step into that relationship, God, that we would seek the Holy Spirit in our lives to know you more. God, your spirit is living inside of us that we may know you more, God. And I pray that we would know you more and that you would show us that only you can satisfy. God, that we would see that there is nothing else that can bring us joy or satisfaction, but you alone, God. Change our lives, God, that we may never be the same. In your glorious, almighty, uncreated name, amen.